Welcome to today's Dhamma class. Uh, today we're going to be um, going through the sutta called the simile of the quail, which is sutta number 66. So, hopefully that most of you in this class have got your little books, but if you haven't, we've got um, a few spare copies here and some photocopied copies. If you'd like to come up now, if you haven't got that many, please, if you're going to come to this class, you have to buy the books. You can give that one out, did you? Yeah. And we have, you can take one of the books. 66. Uh, you have to share. Find a nice, kind person and share with them. Are you okay there? So it's number 66. And just to remind people, the um, the Sutta classes here are just going to uh, the teachings of the Buddha himself. These are the much deeper than the teachings you hear on a Friday night, even on a Saturday afternoon, because here we actually go to what the Buddha actually said. And it uh, refers to the monks, it refers to uh, the deep meditations, it uh, refers to liberation. And this particular uh, sutta here uh, also refers to attachments, the big attachments and small attachments. And in particular, talking about the simile of the quail, is sometimes little quail, even if it's only attached with a small thing. No, it's okay, no, it's all right. He knows it's off by heart. Should do. Even if a little bird is only attached with a small thing, for him it's a big fetter. So the attachments which we have, sometimes we think they're small things, but actually they can be very big. So we can now start on time, even though some more people come in. Please, you'd like to come in? Come in. Don't want to come in. Okay. Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Bhutang dhammang sankhang namasami So I'll be reading a bit out and then making some comments as we go along. So here you go, the 66th Sutta, the Latuki Kopama Sutta, the Simi of the Quail. Thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, was living in the country of the Anguttarapans, which literally means the upper market towns, in a town of theirs named Arpana, which is basically meaning market. Then when it was morning, the Blessed One dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Arpana for arms. In those days, as well as these, the monks go on arms round with their bowl, collecting food for the day from the village. When he had, yeah, please, when he had wandered for arms in Arpana and had returned from his arms round after his meal, he went to a certain grove, a clump of trees, for the day's abiding. Having entered the grove, he sat down at the root of a tree for the day's abiding. When it was morning, the Venerable Udayin, who was one of his disciples, 
Dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, he too went into Arpana for alms. When he had wandered for alms in Arpana and had returned from his alms round, after his meal he went to the same grove for the day's abiding. Having entered that same grove, he sat down at the root of a tree, another tree, for the day's abiding. Then when the venerable Udain was alone in meditation, the following thought arose in his mind. How many painful states has the Blessed One, the Buddha, rid us of? How many pleasant states has the Blessed One brought us? How many unwholesome states has the Blessed One rid us of? How many wholesome states has the Blessed One brought us? Then when it was evening, the Venerable Udain rose from meditation, went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and told him those thoughts. Here, Venerable Sir, when I was alone in meditation, the following thought arose in my mind. How many painful states has the Blessed One rid us of? And how many wholesome states has the Blessed One brought us? He's actually praising the Buddha. Those of you who come in, if you'd like to um, sit next to someone, you can actually also li- uh, look at some of the, uh, the teachings here. Or you can just listen, because it's all being explained here. Venerable Sir, formerly we used to eat in the evening, the morning and during the day, outside the proper time. This is when the, the monastics was the first started. In those days, the monks could eat at any time of the day. But remember, how one ate was actually going for alms food. So listen to this story. Then there was an occasion when the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, Monks, please abandon that daytime meal outside the proper time. And Udayan said, Venerable Sir, I was upset and sad, thinking, faithful householders give us food of various kinds during the day, in the afternoon, yet the Blessed One tells us to abandon this. The Sublime One tells us to relinquish it. But out of love and respect for the Blessed One, and out of shame and fear for wrongdoing, we abandon that daytime meal. Outside the proper time is outside the morning. So we ate only in the evening and in the morning, just two meals a day instead of three. Then there was an occasion when the Blessed One addressed amongst us, Bhikkhus, please abandon that night meal which is outside the proper time. Venerable Sir, I was upset and sad, thinking the Blessed One tells us to abandon the more sumptuous of our two meals. The Sublime One tells us to relinquish it. Once, Venerable Sir, a certain man had obtained some soup during the day, and he said, put that aside, and we will all eat it together in the evening. Nearly all cooking is done at night, little by day. But out of love and respect for the Blessed One, out of shame and fear of wrongdoing, we abandoned that night meal, which was outside the proper time. And that's where they started eating one meal a day, as we do today. It has happened, Venerable Sir, that monks wandering for arms in the thick darkness of the night have walked into a cesspit, fallen into a sewer, walked into a thorn bush, and fallen over a sleeping cow. They have met hoodlums who had already committed a crime, or those planning one is when you go wandering at night. A woman washing a pot saw me by a flash of lightning and screamed out in terror, Mercy me, a devil has come for me. I told her, Sister, I am no devil, I am a monk waiting for arms. Then it's better, <laughs> it's better, oh, then, then she said, then it's a monk whose mother has died and whose father has died. Better monk for you that you get your belly cut open with a sharp butcher's knife 
than this prowling for arms for your belly's sake in the thick darkness of the night. It's an example of what happens if monks go for arms food in the middle of the night. Someone who sees you gets afraid, thinks you're a demon. Venerable sir, when I recollected that, I thought, how many painful states has the Blessed One brought us? How many unwholesome states has the Blessed One rid us of? How many wholesome states has the Blessed One brought us? So before I go any further, is there any comment on that? Just a little story about how the monks uh, stopped eating three meals a day, went to two meals a day, and then went to one meal a day, as it stayed now. And one of the reasons why, if the monks went for arms round, especially at night time, they might fall into a cesspit or a sewer, or meet hoodlums about to do the job. They might get arrested themselves. Any questions on that so far, or comments? Okay, he's talking after he went forth, because the rules for the monks were only laid down little by little, stage by stage. So when the <coughs> the uh, monastic life was first formed, there was no real, real rules. It was only later on that those rules became formulated, as occasion demanded. When there was an when there was a problem, then a rule would be put down to try and solve that problem. So it's interesting, for the monks' rules, the Buddha didn't just sit down and say, okay, what should the rules be? Just as circumstances arose, and uh, the community or the, of monks or the community of nuns, the community of lay people need to be, be protected, then he uh, established those rules as he seemed fit, amended them later on in cases of uh, exceptional circumstances, and that's how we get the rules for monastic uh, monks and nuns today. Little by little. Okay, now we get to the, the Dhamma part of this. So too, Udayin, there are certain misguided men here who, when told by me, abandon this. Say, what? Such a mere trifle? Such a little thing as this? This recluse, meaning the Buddha, is too exacting. And they do not abandon that. And they show discourtesy towards me as well as to those monks desirous of training. For them that becomes a strong, stout, tough, unrotting tether and a thick yoke. So he's talking about attachments here. When the Buddha says abandon this, some people think that's just a small thing, why bother? And because of their attitude, that becomes a strong, stout, tough, unrotting tether and a thick yoke. Suppose Udayin, a quail, were tethered by a rotting creeper, and would thereby expect injury, captivity or death. Now suppose someone said, the rotting creeper by which that quail is tethered and thereby expects injury, captivity or death is for her a feeble, weak, rotting, callous tether. Would they be speaking rightly? No, venerable sir, for that quail, the rotting creeper by which she is tethered and thereby expects injury, captivity or death, is like a strong, stout, tough, unrotting tether and a thick yoke. Just a small being, just a, even a small attachment, is strong. So too are Udayin. There are certain misguided men here who, when told by me, abandon this, say, what, such a mere trifle, such a little thing as this? 
This recluse is much too exacting, and they do not abandon that, and they show discourtesy towards me, as well as to those monks desirous of training. For them, that thing becomes a strong, stout, tough, unrotting tether and a thick yoke. You dying. There are certain clansmen here who, when told by me, abandon this, say, What? Such a mere trifle? Such a little thing to be abandoned as this? The Blessed One tells us to abandon, the Sublime One tells us to relinquish. Yet they abandon that and do not show discourtesy towards me or towards those monks desirous of training. Have abandoned it, they live at ease, unruffled, subsisting on others' gifts, with mind as aloof as a wild deer's. For them that thing becomes a feeble, weak, rotting, callous tether. Suppose Udayin, a royal tusker elephant, with tusks as long as chariot poles, full-grown in stature, high-bred and accustomed to battle. Suppose they were tethered by a stout leather thong, but by simply twisting his body a little, he could break and burst the thongs and go wherever he likes. Now suppose someone said, the stout leather thongs by which this royal tusk elephant is tethered are for him strong, stout, unrotting uh, tethers, they're a thick yoke, Will you be speaking rightly? No, Venerable Sir. The stout leather thongs by which that raw tusker elephant is tethered, which by simply twisting his body a little he could break and burst and then go where he likes, are for him a feeble, weak, rotting, callous tether. So too, dying. There are certain clansmen here who, when told by me, abandon this, say, what a what, such a mere trifle, such a little thing to be abandoned as this? The Blessed One tells us to abandon, the Sublime One tells us to relinquish. Yet they abandon that, and they do not show discourtesy towards me, but towards those monks desirous of training. Having abandoned it, they live at ease, unruffled, subsisting on others' gifts, with minds aloof as a wild deer. For them that thing becomes a feeble, weak, rotting, callous tether. So we're talking here about attachments. The attachments, the strength of the attachments is not inherent in the thing in itself. It depends upon the being who's thereby attached. In other words, just a small little string is a very stout tether for a little quail. But even strong leather bonds is no tether at all for a wild elephant. So even when you think, oh, these things are just small attachments, I don't need to bother about these, they're mere trifles. When a Buddha says, give them up, why not give them up? Otherwise, maybe you are a quail and not an elephant. Understand? Uh, do you really understand? You'll find out soon, because look what's coming next. Suppose, Udayin, there were a rich householder or a householder's son with great wealth and property with a vast number of gold ingots, a vast number of granaries, a vast number of fields, a vast... Oh, yes. Okay, thank you. I like that one better though. Okay, we go to the... Suppose who died and there were poor, penniless, destitute man. I was really getting into that. <laughs> you stopped my flow. <laughs> Never mind. Here we go. Suppose who died there were poor, penniless, destitute man. And he had one dilapidated hovel open to the crows, not the best kind. 
and one dilapidated wicker bedstead, not the best kind, and some grain and pumpkin seeds in a pot, not the best kind, and one hag of a wife, not the best kind. I never wrote that. (laughs) And one hag of a wife, not the best kind. (laughs) He might see a monk in a... He might see a monk in a monastery park sitting in the shade of a tree, his hands and feet well washed after he'd eaten a delicious meal, devoting himself to the higher mind, that's called meditation. He might think how pleasant the recluse state is, how healthy the recluse state is. If only I could shave off my hair and beard, put on a yellow robe and go forth from the home life into homelessness, but being unable to abandon his one dilapidated hovel, open to the crows, not the best kind, unable to abandon his one dilapidated wicker bedstead, not the best kind, unable to abandon his grain and pumpkin seeds in a pot, not the best kind, unable to abandon his hag of a wife, not the best kind. He is unable to shave off his hair and beard, put on a yellow robe and go forth from the home life into homelessness. Now suppose someone said, the tethers by which that man is tethered so that he cannot abandon his one dilapidated hovel and stuff, and not the best kind, and shave off his hair and beard, put on a yellow robe, and go forth from the home life into homelessness. For him, those are a feeble, weak, rotting, cordless tether. Would he be speaking rightly? No, venerable sir. The tethers by which that man is tethered, so that he cannot abandon his wonder dilapidated hovel and his hag of a wife, not the best kind, and shave off his hair and beard, put on a yellow robe, and go forth in the home life into homelessness. For him, those are a strong, stout, tough, unrotting tether and a thick yoke. So too, Dain, there are some certain misguided men here who, when told by me, abandon this, do not abandon that, and they show discourtesy towards me as well as towards those bhikkhus desirous of training. For them, that thick thing becomes a strong, stout, tough, unrotting tether and a thick yoke. So this is an example here, just how we can be attached to things not of the best kind. You don't just mean like a hag of a, uh, a wife, you also mean just a dope of a husband. Whoever it is, it's so easy to be attached to these things. But, paragraph 12, suppose Udayin, there were a rich householder or householder's son with great wealth and property, with a vast number of gold ingots, a vast number of granaries, a vast number of fields, a vast amount of land, and a vast number of wives, and a vast number of men and women slaves. He might see a monk in a monastery park sitting in the shade of a tree, his hands and feet well washed after he had eaten a delicious meal, devoting himself to the higher mind, to meditation. He might think, how pleasant the recluse state is, how healthy the recluse state is, If only I could shave off my hair and beard, put on a yellow robe and go forth from the home life into homelessness. And being able to abandon his vast number of gold ingots, his vast number of granaries, his vast number of fields, his vast amount of land, (laughs) his vast number of wives and his vast number of men and women slaves, he is able to shave off his hair and beard, put on a yellow robe and go forth from the home life into homelessness. Now suppose someone said, the tethers by which that householder or householder's son is tethered, 
so that he can abandon his vast number of gold ingots, etc., and his vast number of men and women slaves, and shave off his hair and beard, put on the yellow robe and go forth from the home life into homelessness. For him those are strong, stout, tough, unrotting tethers. Would they be speaking rightly? No, venerable sirs. The tethers, the attachments by which that household or householder's son is tethered so that he can abandon his vast numbers of gold ingots, his vast number of men and women slaves, and shave off his hair and beard, put on a yellow robe, and go forth in a homeless life into homelessness. For him, these are a feeble, weak, rotting, callous tether. So too, Dayin. There are certain clansmen here who, when told by me, abandon this, abandon that, and they do not show dis- discourtesy towards me or towards those monks desirous of training. Having abandoned those things, they live at ease, unruffled, subsisting on others' gifts, with a mind as aloof as a wild deer's. For them, that thing becomes a feeble, weak, rotting, callous tether. So, attachment, it doesn't matter how much you have. It's not the thing in itself which causes attachment. It's the way we look at it. Why some people can give up billions of dollars and become monks and others can't give up their dope of a husband. <laughs> For those of you, because some people might be offended by the hag of a wife, you may know that in the, the verses of the enlightened women, the, in the Terigata, many of the women in their poems would say that once they became a nun, they had given up the three crooked things. Time and time again, they say how wonderful it was to have given up the three crooked things. You know what those three crooked things were? Crooked thing number one was the ladle, the symbol of kitchen work, of drudgery, because the ladle was crooked to put in the pot to test the curries. They'd given up kitchen work. The third, second crooked thing was the, the broom, which they did their housework. That was the second crooked thing they'd given up once they left a home and became a nun. And how wonderful it was to have given up the second crooked thing, housework. And the third crooked thing they'd given up was their husband, yeah. <laughs> the husband was the third crooked thing they'd given up. I won't say why it was crooked, you should know that, you women. It was the third crooked thing they'd given up. Given up the three crooked things. So you can live as wild, as like as aloof as a wild deer, going wherever you want, not attached to any place or anything. Any questions about this? Any comments? No. Okay, we'll carry on then. It's going to go very quickly today. Udayin, there are four kinds of person to be found existing in the world. What are the four? Just to liven things up a bit, you know that story about the th- there's only three types of peop- people in the world? Those who can count and those who can't count? <laughs> That's what I think about. <laughs> there are only three types of people in the world, those who can count and those who can't count. <laughs> okay, let's go on. <coughs> Here we go. Udayin, there are four kinds of persons to be found existing in the world. What are the four? Here Udayin, some person practices the way to the abandoning of attachment, to the relinquishing of of attachment. 
when he, is, when he is practicing the way, memories and intentions associated with attachment beset him. He tolerates them, he does not abandon them, nor remove them, nor do away with them, and annihilate them. Such a person I call is fettered, not unfettered. Why is that? Because I've known the particular diversity of faculties in this person. Two, here, monk, here Udayan, some person practices the way to the abandoning of attachment, to the relinquishing of attachment. When he is practicing the way, memories and intentions associated with attachment beset him. He does not tolerate them. He abandons them, removes them, does away with them and annihilates them. Such a person too I call fettered, not unfettered. Why is that? Because I've known the particular diversity of faculties in this person. Here who die in some person practices the way to the abandoning of attachment, to the relinquishing of attachment. When he is practicing the way, memories and intentions associated with attachment beset him now and then through lapses of mindfulness. His mindfulness may be slow in arising, but he quickly abandons them, removes them, does away with them, and annihilates them. Just as if a man were to let two or three drops of water fall onto an iron plate, heated for a whole day, like a day like today. The falling of the water drops might be slow, but they would quickly vaporize and vanish. So too, here some person practices the way to the abandoning of attachment, to the relinquishing of attachment, when he is practicing the way, memories and intentions associated with attachment beset him now and then through lapses of mindfulness. But uh, his mindfulness may be slow in arising, but he quickly abandons them, removes them, does away with them, and annihilates them. Such a person too I call fettered, not unfettered. Why is that? Because I have known the particular diversity of faculties in this person. But here who die in, some person having understood that attachment is the root of suffering divests himself of attachment and is liberated with the destruction of attachment. Such a person I call unfettered, not fettered. Why is that? Because I've known the particularly diversity of faculties in this person. Now there's four types of people here. So the first one, one is actually practicing, trying to get rid of attachment, so trying to uh, follow the way. But when their memories, attachments come up, they don't do anything about them. They don't practice any procedure to get rid of the attachments. Therefore, they are still fettered. They're not getting anywhere. The second person, when attachments come up, they try and do away with them. They are still fettered, but at least they're practicing the way. After a while, they'll get there. The third person, they're almost there. It's only through lapses of mindfulness that attachments can come up. And the last person is the one because they've understood that attachment is the root of suffering. Having understood they're giving up attachments for the sake of giving up suffering, for the sake of giving up pain and problems, for the sake of happiness. And they're the person who's fully abandoned their attachments. Yes, Hello. Sorry? The four, I don't think, what was it saying in the, in the back? I didn't have time to have a look at the, the notes in the back here. See what the commentary says. The last person obviously is a fully enlightened arahat. Uh, yes. They say the, fir, or, the, pers the ordinary person, the stream winner, the once returned non-returner, can all be included under the first category. 
the non-returner Yeah, I think they say that it's only the, the non-returner is number three so it, really these, these don't really um, too clearly um, correspond to the four stages of enlightenment the first one is just an ordinary person the ordinary Joe and the second one can also be just an ordinary Joe but, or Joan, somebody who's actually trying to abandon their attachments so they're going well. The third one, you think that the third one would be someone who's very, very close to abandoning attachments. And I would actually probably say that third one is the non-returner. And the fourth one, obviously, is the arahat. But it just shows you just the way that we abandon attachments. Now, realizing those attachments, stopping us, having a mind like a wild deer, someone who's free, someone's unburdened, someone who is not tied down to things in the world and has a happiness of such freedom. That uh, seeing that we want to abandon our attachments, some people don't even try. That's number one. Some people try, but they haven't really succeeded yet. Number three is some people have tried and they're almost there. It's just a small little lapse of mindfulness from time to time stops them. And so that probably is the anagami non-returner. And the fourth person is because they really fully understood the purpose of abandoning attachments, knowing that attachment is the root of suffering that thereby they have completely abandoned their attachments. Any comments on that? Yeah? yeah the way to abandon attachments is always the Eightfold Path. There's something else coming up soon. Uh, it's actually knowing the difference between pleasure and different types of pleasures, different types of happiness. And this is coming up soon, but uh, here it's just showing just uh, almost like the journey of abandoning attachments. And how, especially what I always find interesting about that passage is number three, where even no one has uh, done a lot to abandon attachments. Every now and again, for the practitioner who's almost there, just moments, lapses of mindfulness. But even though those lapses of mindfulness might come up, just one's nature it's been to let go, to give up, to be renouncing, to have no attachments. And so one's very nature, even if just a small moment of lapse of mindfulness comes up. Now the mind, just like the hot plate, those attachments just can't last very long. They vaporize just so quickly. This is actually an interesting point that when you practice your whole life in a certain direction, a certain way, especially a way of letting go, a way of renouncing and freedom, even if a small attachment comes up, it just can't survive in your mind. A lapse of mindfulness might be there, but it can't last that long. It's just, <coughs> just the inclinations of our mind. That that is much, much stronger than small events which happen from time to time. For example, this is just by the way, but recently when I was in Malaysia and Singapore, some people were complaining because uh, some of their relations, you know, when they were dying, the, these Christian fundamentalists would see them dying and go to their bedside and harangue them to make them convert to being a Christian before they died. They'd been a Buddhist all their life. And now they had these people haranguing them and some gave in and said, OK, I'll be a Christian. They said, oh, is my father now a Christian? I said, of course not. He just probably said that to get rid of these guys. And you can't just change the whole life 
a whole way of looking, a whole philosophy just in one second or two seconds. Those little ceremonies have little meaning. It's actually the whole um, thrust, the whole current of one's life will soon overcome that. Maybe a lapse of mindfulness or a decision was made in the pressure of the circumstances. That is not something which will affect your life too much. You can see just the whole thrust of one's life, the whole way one thinks, the whole character traits, that those are what's important, not just a few lapses of mindfulness or a few moments when one is out of character. That make sense? Okay. We'll carry on. Now. Where we go? All right, where am I? Um, oh, yes. Number 18, paragraph 18. There are, Udayin, five cords of sensual pleasure. What are the five? Forms cognizable by the eye that are wished for, desired, agreeable, unlikable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. Sounds cognizable by the ear. Odors cognizable by the nose. Flavors cognizable by the tongue. Tangibles cognizable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable. Connected with sensual desire, provocative of lust. These are the five causes of sensual pleasure. And this is an important part of Buddhism because here the, the Buddha starts to make that distinction between the five senses and the pleasure of those five senses and coming up next, the pleasure of the sixth sense, the mind. In Buddhism from the very start they always had six senses and even in I think ancient Greek philosophy they had six senses as well. Somewhere along the line in our Western civilization we lost one of our senses and the results of losing that sense have been quite catastrophic on our civilization. So part of my job, part of the job of Buddhism in the West is to try and return the idea not to five senses but to six senses to bring another sense into our Western philosophy, the sense of mind. But those are the five senses of our sight, sound, smell, taste and touch. And the pleasures depend upon those five senses. Now, Udayan, the pleasure and joy that arise depend upon these five causes of sensual pleasure, um, sight, sound, smell, taste and touch, are called sensory pleasure. A filthy pleasure, a coarse pleasure, an ignoble pleasure. The word filthy pleasure over here, actually in Pali, it actually means, and I, it, please excuse me, but this is actually what the word means. It means piss pleasure, P-I-S-S. It is a coarse word for urine, milhasuka. So the Buddha wasn't actually praising that at all. A coarse pleasure, an ignoble pleasure. I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be not be pursued, that it should not be developed, that it should not be cultivated, that is, it should be feared. Now, I don't know whether that for you is one of those um, tethers which is uh, tying you down, but see what the other type of pleasure is. Uh, and here we die in, quite, this is uh, paragraph 20, Quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a monk enters upon and abides in the first jhana. With the stilling of applied and sustained movement of the mind, they enter upon and abide in the second jhana. With the fading away as well of rapture, they enter upon the third jhana. 
with the abounding of pleasure and pain they end upon the fourth jhana. This is called the bliss of renunciation, the bliss of seclusion, the bliss of peace, the bliss of enlightenment. I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued, that it should be developed, that it should be cultivated, that it should not be feared. And this is probably the one reason I've read this out today, just because of that one paragraph. We're talking here about the happiness based on the sixth sense, the sense of mind. This is the jhanas, the bliss of the jhanas, or the jhanas themselves. It's called the bliss of enunciation, nekamasukha, the bliss of seclusion, pariwekasukha, the bliss of peace, upasama sukha. Peace is everything settled down, settled down. For those of you on your uh, committee, when um, Saul was a novice, we gave him the name Upasama, the same peace, the bliss of peace, and the bliss of enlightenment, Sambodhi Sukha. This is what enlightenment is, Sambodhi. And the Buddha here, quite remarkably, is actually call, calling the happiness of the deep meditations, the bliss of enlightenment. And it's remarkable because that is not enlightenment. Everyone who knows Buddhism knows that. But, obviously it's close enough, the Buddha says, that that happiness, you can call it the bliss of enlightenment. And moreover, he says, of this kind of pleasure, it should be pursued, it should be developed, it should be cultivated, it should not be feared. Too many people go around saying that those happinesses of meditation, they say do not get attached to those. This whole sutta, this teaching here is about attachment. And the Buddha said this is not attachment. These are to be developed, pursued, cultivated, not to be feared. The pleasures of the mind. And it's only when you understand those pleasures, you understand why the Buddha called the other sense pleasures of the five senses, you know, the filthy pleasure, coarse pleasure, in comparison to the bliss of meditation. Those pleasures are well named by the Buddha. Even though when you get into deep meditation yourself, it sometimes comes up, you're having such a happy time. It cannot be the path to enlightenment. Surely such happiness, such pleasure, it just cannot be, some people think, the path to enlightenment. And the Buddha said, it is the path to enlightenment. It should be pursued, it should be developed, it should be cultivated, it should not be feared. This is following the happiness of the sixth sense. Recently while I was in Singapore, Malaysia, teaching a retreat, I found that many people when they're meditating, whenever some pleasure and happiness came in their meditation, they would not follow it. Instead they would always be in their bodies, sitting for hours and hours and hours, just enjoying pain. And I cultivated a new word for that type of meditation. Just as in the breath meditation we call it anapanasati. Those who follow pain in the body, we call that anapanasati. So then that's not something taught by the Buddha, anapanasati, anapanasati, or if you like, anasukasati, 
Anna bliss sati. Now that is what the Buddha taught. And this is one of the places you can quote. Here you die in number 22. Here you die in quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states. A bhikkhu enters and abides in the first jhana. Now this, I say, belongs to the perturbable. And therein, and, there, and what therein belongs to the perturbable. The applied thought and sustained thought there have not ceased. Therein, that is what belongs to the perturbable. The, as many of you know when I've uh, described these jhanas before, when it says thought there, it doesn't really mean the same thing as we usually know as thought. The Pali word means more like a movement of the mind onto its object. A subverbal thought, not a commentary at all. By the time you get anywhere near these jhanas, all thoughts have completely stopped. You are peaceful, you are still. But there's still that movement of the mind, which means the mind is still perturbable. And here we go through the, the jhanas, one by one. Here Udayan, here Udayan, with a stilling of applied thought, a stilling of applied and sustained, I call it movement of the mind, onto its object. A monk enters upon and abides in the second jhana. That, now this, I say, also belongs to the perturbable. And what therein belongs to the perturbable? The rapture and pleasure that have not ceased therein. That is what belongs to the perturbable. It's amazing that that, that bliss there, even though the Buddha calls it Sambodhi Sukha, the bliss of enlightenment, it's very, very close, but not quite. And here we're getting closer. Here we're dying with a fading away as well of rapture, this half of the bliss. A monk enters upon and abides in the third jhana. Now this, I say, also belongs to the perturbable. And what therein belongs to the perturbable? The equanimity and pleasure that have not ceased therein. That is what belongs to the perturbable. It's like the pleasure based on that equanimity. And here we dine with the abandoning of pleasure and pain. A monk enters upon and abides in the fourth jhana. Now this, I say, belongs to the imperturbable. This is the equanimity. Even though other places the Buddha says that that is the pleasure of equanimity. One of the first jhana is the pleasure of being abandoning the body and being just in the mind. The second jhana is having abandoned that last movement of the mind and now one is still. The third is the, having abandoned that coarse part of the pleasure and the fourth is having abandoned the finer point of pleasure. But there's an even ref more refined pleasure of the fourth jhana, which is called equanimity, stillness. Here die in quite secluded from sensual pleasures. That means the five senses. Secluded from unwholesome states, which means the five uh, hindrances. A monk enters upon abides in the first jhana. That, I say, is not enough. Abandon it, I say. Surmount it. And what surmounts it? Here dying with a stilling of applied and sustained movement of mind. A monk enters upon and abides in a second jhana. That surmounts it. But that too, I say, is not enough. Abandon it, I say. Surmount it. And what surmounts it? Here who dying with a fading away as well of rapture. A monk enters upon and abides in a third jhana. That surmounts it. But that too, I say, is not enough. Abandon it, I say. Surmount it, I say. And what surmounts it? Here you dying with the abandoning of pleasure and pain. A monk enters upon and abides in the fourth jhana. That surmounts it. But that too, I say, is not enough. Abandon it. I say, surmount it. And what surmounts it? And here we go into the four immaterial attainments. Here we dine with the complete surmounting of perceptions of form, with the disappearance of perceptions of sensory impact, with non-attention to perceptions of diversity. 
aware that space is infinite. I prefer the word unbounded, unlimited, unlimited by things. A mind enters upon the bias in the base of infinite or unlimited space. That surmounts it, surmounts the equanimity. But that too, I say, is not enough. Abandoned, I say, surmounted, I say. And what surmounts it? Here we die in by completely surmounting the base of infinite space, or rather unlimited space. All ideal space now goes. When it's unlimited, uh, unmeasured, unbound uh, space, then it's almost like space is just disappearing. And the next thing which comes up is consciousness. Aware that consciousness also is unbound, unlimited, undefined. A monk enters upon and abides in the base of unlimited consciousness. That's amounts of previous one. But that too, I say, is not enough. Abandoned it, I say. Surmounted, I say. And what surmounts it? Here you die in by completely surmounting the base of the unlimited consciousness, where consciousness completely, completely disappears. Aware that there is nothing. A monk enters upon and abides in the base of nothingness. That surmounts it. But that too, I say, is not enough. Abandoned, I say. Surmounted, I say. One is actually seeing nothing. There is still an object in the mind. There is still something to be abandoned. One has to let go now of nothing. Here we die in by completely surmounting the base of nothingness. Letting go of nothing. Our mind enters upon the bias in the base of neither perception or non-perception. You're giving up perception, but you're still watching non-perception. You're perceiving non-perception. That's why it's neither perception nor non-perception. That surmounts it, but that too I say is not enough. Abandoned I say, surmounted I say. And what surmounts it? Here you're dying by completely surmounting the base of neither perception or non-perception. You just turn off perception. And a mind enters upon the bias in the cessation of perception and feeling. That surmounts it. Thus I speak of the abandoning, even of the base of neither perception or non-perception. Do you see, Udayan, any fetter, small or great, whose abandoning I do not speak of? No, Venerable Sir. That is what the Blessed One said. The Venerable Udayan was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. Now I just took you through the most refined states of consciousness ever, which you could ever experience uh, in samsara, through the jhanas and beyond, all about letting go, letting go of your attachments. Even those things you think are trivial, if you can't let them go, they are for you a stout bond. Sometimes we ask people to keep precepts and say, what's the point, just a small glass of alcohol, that's not very much. If you can't give it up, for you it's like a stout bond. It's like a, a big, heavy rope tying you down. If it is really trivial, why not give it up? As one monk said in Thailand, even a small fire is dangerous, just like a small drink. If you don't believe me, take out a match and hold it under your finger when it's lit. Even a small fire can burn. So, he said, even these small attachments, why do you bother? Why not let them go? To throw away everything if one really wants to become enlightened. If one wants to be like a wild deer, free. And we go here, not just to 
giving up the pleasures of the body, which attaches to our body, but giving up the pleasures even in the mind as we go through the jhana, and giving up even perception and knowing. This is what the Buddha said, we should give up. And if one can't, one is still tethered, tethered to the world or tethered to the mind. The simile of the quail going all the way to full enlightenment. Any comments or questions about that? Has it completely bamboozled you? Does anyone want to come and become a monk or a nun this afternoon? Is there any, <laughs> any tether which is <laughs> to tie you down? Some of you got responsibilities, some of you got husbands and wives, some of you got mortgages, but some of you haven't got any of that, have you? So, <laughs> why can't we give those things up? So the Buddha is actually really laying on the line here. This is why these suttas which the Buddha gave, uh, he wasn't just trying to please people, he just laid it down as it was, didn't mind if he upset people. Basically he was uh, teaching about attachments and all those attachments and how that sometimes people think, oh I'm not really attached, I'm not really attached, I can give it up any time I want, I just don't care to give it up today. Just like the smoker. The smoker thinks, oh, I'm not really attached to cigarettes, I can give it up any time, but you know, I don't really need to give it up today, so what? They are attached. If they could give it up, they would give it up. So be careful of your attachments. Yeah. Aha. Aha. This is good, a good point here, because is it goal orientated? When the Buddha said, like, surmount it, so in these um, going way th through the, the jhanas, uh, on uh, paragraph 26 to 34 or something, he said, uh, But I say, that is not enough. Abandon it, I say. Surmount it, I, I say. And this is actually the path which goes on. Not as much goal orientated, but abandoning orientated. If it's goal orientated, then sometimes that is actually um, meditating to get something, practicing to go somewhere. Whereas Ajahn Chah very beautifully said many, many years ago, we practice meditation not to gain things, we practice meditation to abandon things. Not to get more acquisitions, more attachments, but to let go of more things, to give up more. So you could call it a goal, but really it's a goal of letting go. Attaching, detaching, giving up. And that's an important thing to do, because you've heard me say recently in the, the meditations, that to get even into the first stages of meditation, one has to do a lot of letting go, to meditate with no expectations, which is called giving. Real generosity, real giving, is where you give, not expecting a, uh, a receipt so you can plan came back on your taxes, not expecting your name to be written down somewhere, not to even be uh, given a thank you. Because that is giving, expecting something back in return. That is almost doing a business deal. But real giving is just giving, not even accept, expecting anything back. You see, it's letting go, it's giving up, it's renouncing. That is what we call the letting go of attachments. So even when one 
meditates, to give the time to the meditation, not expecting anything at all. And that's how you develop deep meditation. Not wanting anything more but being content where one is. This is good enough. This is good enough. This is good enough. This is called contentment. It's from that contentment that the knots of attachment are untied. That's when the meditation really starts to take off. This is how you surmount every stage of the meditation and go deeper. When it says surmount it, it doesn't mean you, you give up those attainments. You just go deeper into them. That's how you, you abandon something more to get to the next stage. There's a simile I've given before of the, the balloon, the hot air balloon. Many people have seen people go ballooning. To go high into the air in your hot air balloon for the peace and for the view. You've got to throw out all the ballast in your balloon until you can go as high as you can. And then you look in your balloon, what more can I throw out? Your sandwiches, your drink. Throw it all out. And then you throw out everything you possibly can find in your basket out of your balloon. How can I go higher? There's nothing more to throw out until you start finally figure out, now I've got to throw out the basket. So you untie the basket and you throw the basket off and the balloon goes even higher and it goes as high as it can with you holding on to the strings. And how can it go higher? There's nothing more to throw away. Oh yes there is. You. When you throw you out, then the balloon goes all the way into Nibbana. In that, sim <laughs> in that simile, throwing out all the ballast is all the attachments we have in the world. Throw them out, throw them out. Even your lunch, your sensory concerns, you throw them out until there's nothing left. How more can I throw out? Then the basket, your body. You throw away the body by going into deep meditation where you can't even feel your body. Then you go so high into deep meditation, you go into the jhanas. But then, how can you go higher? How can you surmount that? What more can you throw away? Aha, you, the knower. When you throw that out, that's like letting go of the balloon. And then the balloon goes all the way into Nibbana. It's called letting go. Real letting go. Big letting go. So, not many people have, have the guts to do that. But the reason why they do do that is because the more you get let go, the more pleasure you get. That's why the Buddha said of those jhanas, these are the pleasures of enunciation, the pleasures of, what do you say, of enlightenment, the pleasures of renunciation, the bliss of peace. And if anyone has even a whiff of those sorts of pleasures, then they know they're so much better than anything in the world. And as you go deep in the meditation, the pleasures get even more extreme, more profound, until, as the Buddha said, enlightenment itself. Enlightenment, paramang sukang. Like paramang, we know that these days in the Latin world. Paramount, not the pictures, but paramount means just the ultimate. Paramang sukang, the paramount happiness, the ultimate bliss, enlightenment. So if you think that Buddhism is just a, uh, a wowser religion, if you think it's just for people who just don't want people to be happy, if you think that 
people who become monks are sexual deviants and they don't know how to have a good time then you are wrong this path is the way of even more happiness the more attachment you let go of the more you give up the happier you are you get the happiness like a wild deer free of all burdens any takers? <laughs> maybe not in this life maybe in the next life who knows any other questions? yeah ah yeah yeah I've been talking a lot about that because you always notice this and the biggest thing is we try too hard there's too many goals I say this on Saturday afternoon uh, in the meditation that when the Buddha uh, before he became the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree before he sat under the Bodhi tree sorry he put his bowl in the river Niranjara and he made a determination if I've got what it takes to become enlightened may my bowl go against the current go against the stream and it did and that was an omen he would become enlightened but it was more than just an omen it was a metaphor of what he had to do to go against the stream of the world what is that stream of the world? all craving but what it really means is if you want something you've got to go and get it you've got to strive and struggle for it whatever you've done in your world you've lived many years you've worked so hard to get where you are now you struggle so much you strive and you've got your worldly goals that's the current of the world and that's the way you have to work in the world even monks, even enlightened monks that have to work hard building their monasteries, doing things Ajahn Chah works so hard but that's in the world when you meditate you go in the opposite direction instead of striving you abandon, you let go you give up all wanting this is good enough people think, hey if you say it's good enough you'll get nowhere if you're compassionate the door of my heart is open to you no matter what happens how will your mind ever grow anywhere when you're so sort of complacent but you try that with 100% kindness the door of my heart is open to this moment any moment anything goes then you find the mind becomes still that is the way into deep meditation non-doing abandoning the doer abandoning the controller abandoning that part of the self which always wants to go out there and get things giving without expecting anything in return how many people can do something when there's nothing in it for them how many people can really give not expecting anything how many people can be content when I'm taught like that the people, some of them for the first time have gone into some deep meditations just recently returning from Malaysia and Singapore some great success when I told people that we retreat they said look this is a Nobel silence retreat because you know we're on retreats we do Nobel silence but I said remember this is spelled N-O-B-E-L-L-S-I-L-E-N-C-E Nobel silence there's no bells there's no wake up bells you don't have to go and meditate at this particular time we know time you go to bed you can sleep whenever you want you can actually get up in the morning for breakfast and just after breakfast go back to bed again and sleep if you really want to be kind to your body 
And they thought I was absolutely crazy. This is Malaysians. These are like um, people who were, had high power jobs, who were used to going and getting things and doing things. And they used to, Anapana Sati, just you know, work through it and you'll get something if you sort of keep working through the pain. But when I did this, they, at least they had enough faith and confidence to try it out. And some of them, they slept so much for the first couple of days. After two or three days, they were relaxed. Then they could really start to meditate. And they had the same idea of not doing things, going with the flow or whatever you might like to call it. Letting go, just being alert, but not doing things. And they got into some great meditations. And by the end they were sitting, one lady who's only ever sat for 45 minutes before, she sat for three hours, missed her lunch. This is what happens. Because they're going against the stream of the world. They're letting go. They're being kind. Or like this simile I told yesterday afternoon, the meditation. There's also the story which many of you remember from if you've ever been to read the scriptures or the stories of the Buddha. Nalagiri the elephant. Somebody fed Nalagiri with alcohol to make it mad. And they set Nalagiri on the path, charging completely out of its mind, this mad, crazy, fierce elephant in the path of the Buddha. Knowing the Buddha was coming in arms round along that narrow road. And when they saw this mad elephant charging towards them, all the monks scarpered, except Ananda, who stood in front of the Buddha, the brave royal attendant. They're trying to sort of do the John Wayne thing. And, and the Buddha said, gently pushing him out, Ananda, it's okay, I'm alright, you don't need to protect me. And then what did the Buddha do to defeat the fearsome, crazy elephant Nalagiri? He didn't try and f- use force. He didn't take hold of Nalagiri by the trunk and whirl him around his head and throw him over the Ganges. He didn't use any force at all. He used loving kindness. Nalagiri, the door of my heart is open to you. No matter what you ever do. If you want to kill me, that's fine. Unconditional acceptance of loving kindness. And at that, Nalagiri stopped, just bowed down to the Buddha, and within a few seconds, the Buddha was stroking this docile elephant's trunk. Now, that was, you all know that story. Now, what happens? How does that relate to your mind? There are times when you've got Nalagiri in your head, this raging, crazy elephant mind who is drunk, intoxicated, fierce and violent. And how do you try and stop the Nalagiri in your mind during meditation when you go absolutely crazy? We try and sort of fight that and we always get defeated. Instead we say, crazy mind, the door of my heart's open to you. Unconditional acceptance. And in a few seconds, your crazy, intoxicated, mad mind will be kneeling before you, docile at peace. It goes against the stream of the world. But, my goodness, it works. That's the reason. Because people go in the wrong direction. Even though the Buddha kept on saying this, monks keep on saying this, meditate to let go, don't meditate to get somewhere. We think, oh yeah, yeah, but. We meditate to get somewhere. We meditate to try and gain something. We charge at the defilements of our mind. We try and get rid of them. We struggle, we strive. We make war. And when you make war, you know what happens when you make war? You get collateral damage. 
you get headaches and frustration that's called collateral damage you make peace make peace with Nalagiri make peace with this moment make peace with this body, with this mind it's called letting go of attachment understand? you're a wild deer no boundaries that makes sense? Okay. Any other question today? Okay, it's a short one. Going, going. <laughs> okay, got two questions at the last moment. Okay, go on quickly. Ah, okay, yeah. It's an interesting, the whole word, what, uh, asupa, it really means like the not beautiful. And it needs just to balance sort of the beauty. So if you see something which you really, really, really want, then in order to let go of that craving, that attachment, you start to look upon it in the other way, in a way which looks at its faults, looks at its downside, looks at its problems. So actually you can see like the full picture. Whenever you look at something, it's always got its aspects which are beautiful. It's also got its aspects which are not so beautiful. You can look at the food. You know, sometimes people have a lot of greed for food. So look at the food. It looks so, so delicious. But, as I was saying to people yesterday, no matter what colour it goes into the mouth, it always comes out the other end, the same colour. <laughs> so, whenever actually you look at your food, now the faeces is in that food somewhere. No matter what food you're eating, the faeces is contained in that food which you're eating. And there's other stuff which is actually almost like coating it, like wrapping. And you sort of take that stuff out, that's the good stuff which you consume, your body needs. And all the rest of the stuff is faeces. And you know how much food you eat and how much comes out the other end? Most of the food is faeces. So if you look like, <laughs> if you start contemplating like that, sometimes, you know, you don't feel so hungry. <laughs> you don't get so much craving for food. But if you go too far on that, Obviously you won't eat at all, and that goes too far. So the whole idea is balance. Food is just food. People are just people. There's no such thing as a beautiful woman or an ugly woman. There's no such thing as a handsome man or an ugly man. This is just what we add on to it. So just people are just people. I just you know, look at the kangaroos in Bodhinyana Monastery. And to me, like a male kangaroo, female kangaroo, they look equally they're not attractive, they're not ugly. But imagine it's a male kangaroo, those females look just so attractive. And so the females, that big kangaroo looks so hunky. So, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. Remember Ajahn Chakra telling me a story once. <laughs> the, uh, the male kangaroo was chasing one of the females, chasing the females trying to run away. At least that's what it looked like. And Ajahn Chakra was on his veranda just watching these two. And so the female was getting really out of puff. And so it, it uh, jumped right next to Ajahn Jakaro, right next to him, and just stood there. Sanctuary. And so this big male kangaroo was looking up there, didn't know what to do. <laughs> you know, because you know, he had its last, he wanted this uh, female kangaroo. We had a monk sitting next to this girl kangaroo, so didn't know what to do. And the female just you know, stood there for about five minutes until she got her, her breath back. And then she jumped off and let the male kangaroo chase her again. 
<laughs> he said, she didn't mind being chased, but it was just going a bit too, too much. She just wanted a bit of a breather, that's all. <laughs> it's interesting, sort of, kangaroo psychology and sociology. Yeah, he could have stayed there all the time. He could have just went to sleep next to Ajahn Joko and would never have any bother with the male kangaroo, but didn't really want that. It still had some tethers and some attachments, which it hadn't really uh, cut off yet. <laughs> so the, po- the point of the matter is we try and balance things. When I see a kangaroo, I can't see any difference. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see human beings like that? You know, to see human beings as human beings, not as no. sex objects, not as women, not as men. So this is why we do the Yasupa. So if you see someone you really, really, really like, then you balance it by seeing all the faults. And that way they're just a person, they're just a boy, they're just a girl, that's all. That's if you want to let go of attachments. That's if you want to live like a wild deer. However, if you want to sort of live as a person who is bound to your house and to all your kids, if you want to be attached, they say you start off life with what they call the five candors of body, feelings, perception, mental formations and consciousness. As you go through life, you manage to get another five candors and then your ten candors to worry about. And after a while, you get 15 candors, 20 candors, <laughs> 25 candors. When you have kids, you have little candors. And five candors is enough of a burden. So, you know what to do? It's up to you what you want in life. At least, Buddhism does its bit for the environment. We do our bit to lower world population. <laughs> That's one of the big problems facing the world, isn't it? Overpopulation. <laughs> okay. Oh, you had a question as well. The mind a barrier? No, it's not a barrier. It's uh, the mind is actually the field where one goes into. It's sometimes uh, things which emanate from delusion, such as. Fear, craving, wanting, control, those are the things which are barriers. But the mind itself is no barrier at all. The mind is actually an incredibly beautiful, powerful, wonderful thing, which really attracts you to it once you get close enough. The mind is like covered with his five senses, and once his five senses are removed, the Buddha gave the simile, it's like the moon, Sort of, uh, which comes out from behind the clouds. It's beautiful, it's brilliant. And that's like the mind when it's uh, released from the, f- the body and the five senses. Is that really what your question was about? Okay. Okay, so that's enough for today on this hot day. Are there any um, res- re- requests for the next... That was pretty quick, John. You had this all planned, didn't you? For the next uh, Sutta class. Yeah, go on. The Great Forty. Oh, that's a really good one. The Great Forty is a very good one. One of the reasons is because I quote that many very often because sometimes they say this um, super mundane and mundane parts of the path, the Eightfold Path. And it is true, the first five factors, there is what they call like a worldly right view and super mundane right view. And that goes for all the other five. But when it comes to the last three factors, the meditation factors, when it comes to right effort and 
uh, to uh, right mindfulness and right concentration, then that's where that um, dualism ends. And I've seen some people who made that mistake, they start calling like mundane jhanas. There's no such thing as mundane jhanas. All jhanas are super mundane. They're beyond this world. And all mindfulness, the four satipatthanas are super mundane. All right efforts are super mundane. And that comes out from the great forty. It's one of the things which it says there. So, number 117 is coming in two weeks' time. Tell your friends. Don't miss it. Sutta 117, the great forty. Okay, so you can now pay respects to Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. And those of you who have uh, the photocopied versions, you can keep those if you wish, or you can return them, it's up to you. But the books which I uh, lent out today, they belong to the library, so please give them back, otherwise I get in trouble. Oh, uh-huh.